You're listening to the New Blue Review. I'm Benji Shulman, and if you're joining us on 101.9 High FM or on the Jerusalem Post, welcome to the program. It's good to be with you on your favorite Jewish current affairs and culture show. And today on the program, we're going to be asking the question, what is a conservative Jew to do, or perhaps a Jewish conservative? So to answer that question, we are going to be speaking to Eliana Mazels. She's from the Tikva Fellowship, the Tikva Foundation, and they do a lot of work on conservative policies when it comes to Israel and the Jewish people. And she's just written an interesting paper on the topic, so we're going to be talking about that later on in the program. We're also going to be dealing with our innovation of the week coming out of Israel, so that should be pretty interesting. But before we get there, I want to do the travel feature of the week and talk about some interesting places that you may want to travel to in your spare time and go and look in our beautiful city and beautiful country. And on today's list, I thought I would go and have a look at some of the things that's been happening in the news. There's been a lot of stuff going on, if you've been following in Charlottesville in America, and all these neo-Nazis and Antifa and all this kind of stuff, was really brought on by a big debate, a debate which we've also having an issue with here in South Africa, and that has to do with statues, uh, in the American case, of the Confederacy of the southern side of the Americans of the war that eventually lost the war, but kept their statues and their Confederate flags. And this has been upsetting a whole range of Americans, uh, but especially, obviously, African Americans who suffered in that war from a perspective of being slaves, uh, Northern Americans who are upset that uh, people are still using these old Southern symbols. And there's been a lot of attempts to either, depending on what side you are, take down these statues or put them up, uh, or protect them, rather. They've been put up already, and a lot of uh, statues need to be protected or moved or, or whatever. So in thinking about history and commemorating history and also looking at parts of history which we're not necessarily so comfortable with, I thought we would explore today going to the South African National Military History Museum. That's in Saxon World. It's just next to the Shabin, actually, and next door to the zoo. And it has all sorts of artifacts that have to do with South Africa's participation in military endeavors, mostly from First World War and Second World War, but it includes stuff from the Boer War, from even before the Boer War, uh, with various wars between the British and various uh, of the African tribes in South Africa, and the Boers and various African tribes, and obviously the African uh, Anglo-Boer War. So it has all of that right up to the Second World War, and uh, South Africa's participation in some later wars, including uh, the the Korean War, you know, Kim Jong-un and his uh, wanting to blow up everything in sight. So South Africa actually had a part to play in that war too, in the division of North Korea and South Korea, which is really interesting. And even going later on into the Angolan War and into some of the other aspects, including quite interesting stuff around Mkonto Sizwe, uh, the ANC's Liberation Wing, which had a military presence in large chunks of Africa, specifically Angola, uh, but also Namibia, and even anti-war stuff. They've got all sorts of paraphernalia around the end conscription campaign, which was a campaign in the 1980s uh, and 90s. I guess the 1980s, it didn't go too much later than that, but it was about getting young South Africans not to 
go and serve in the SADF, the South African Defence Forces, uh, who were at that time fighting Angola. And they say, no, we don't want to be conscripted anymore. We don't want to go to Angola, to the border. And so they've got that whole campaign, including what I thought was quite a nice touch, uh, includes a Bart Simpson poster, which saying, eat my call-up, as opposed to eat my shorts, which was his thing to say in the 80s. Bart Simpson, I like that poster in particular. If you are a military history buff, it is... Uh, an incredible place, particularly if you like any of the ground warfare or the aerial warfare or even sea warfare. They've actually got stuff from all different periods. Uh, some of my favorite pieces on display include from the airline perspective, and this is where it's interesting to talk about uh, historical monuments. So on the one hand, they've got the Supermarine Spitfire. The Spitfire was the plane that was used in the defense of the Battle of Britain. It was the main Allied plane, uh, except for perhaps the Hurricane, which which basically won the aerial war for Britain in World War II. And there's only about 50 of them left in the world. So you can actually go see it, you can sit in it, uh, and it is a remarkable machine. It doesn't fly anymore, but you can see what a Spitfire looked like, and it's a very a special thing to see. Uh, also on the list, however, on the other side, is actually a Nazi plane, a Messerschmitt, and it was a Messerschmitt night flyer, um, night flyer bomber. Uh, and it was interesting because it was one of the first jet propulsion bombers in, uh, ever in use. And so it was, it was used. And they still got all the Nazi regalia on it and the swastikas and whatever. Uh, but it's not prominently displayed and everybody kind of understands what it is. And it's an important piece of history because it's actually one of also the few that exists anymore. So that's fascinating. If you at all like the movie Pearl Harbor, I would go and have a look. They don't have exactly uh, anything from Pearl Harbor. What they do have is a submarine which was used. It is a one-person submarine, and one-person submarines were used in the attack on Pearl Harbor. So if you can imagine yourself literally going under the water in a one-person submarine, that is uh, a great uh, thing to have a look at. So I would Go and have a look. And then everything else from tanks to bits of artillery to motorized vehicles, uh, basically everything that's military. Particularly cool if you're a, a child, you want to explain to your kids all about war and what does it mean. And uh, they have all of this stuff there. It's, a lot of it is clamberable. Uh, you can like get onto it and see the tank and see all the stuff. So that is uh, a great thing if you're a kid and interested in that. And of course there are all the memorials. So for example, outside of the museum, they have the center Toff, and that is a memorial to people killed in the first world war. Quite an interesting memorial. You can actually see it from the highway. It's that sort of big angel arc type thing. Uh, and that is pretty interesting. And then there's even some Jewish history there. Uh, there is a wall with different people who've died as South African Defense Force members, and there's also a special section on one of the walls with uh, a Jewish section to it. So definitely well worth a visit if you want to understand the history of warfare and its costs and what different people died for in different wars, particularly in the making of South Africa, which uh, was quite an important process i would go have a look it's in saxon world if you tell them in advance that you're coming they will organize you a tour and you can also have someone professional show you around which is always great because if you're not sure what you're looking at uh, or you don't really have so much background then that can be uh, a bit of an issue so if you want to contact them you can go on 010-001-3515 that's 010-001-3515 and uh, they will happily have a look. Or if you want to look at the museum on the website, it's 
ditsong, D-I-T-S-O-N-G dot org dot Z-A, and then click on the Museum of Military History link. Uh, and the price, adults are 40 rand, learners and students are 30 rand, or if you're a senior citizen, it is 30 rand, uh, excuse me, 20 rand. So, yeah, there we go. That's the travel feature for the week. Go have a look at the War Museum and go have a look at the people who pay the ultimate price for a lot of the things we take for granted every day. 101.9 FM. 101.9 High FM. 101.9 High FM. It is 101.9. 101.9 High FM. High FM. High FM. High FM. You're listening to the new Blue Review. I'm Benji Shulman, and if you're joining us on 101.9 Chai FM or the Jerusalem Post, it is really nice to be back with you once again. And as you may have noticed on this show, we occasionally do look into uh, food and uh, eating, because that is one of my favorite hobbies and things that I like to do. And I like to mix it up a bit with politics as well, so... On this particular show, we're going to be asking that deep uh, philosophical question, why don't we give peas a chance? Uh, And the reason I'm saying that is because we're going to be investigating the political and social aspect of chickpeas, particularly when they are made into hummus. Uh, We are going to be looking at that very quintessential Middle Eastern food. And to do that, we have the director of Hummus the Movie, which has been winning awards all over the world and going and... uh, be playing really all sorts of places and introducing the idea of hummus and what it stands for all over the world. We have director Oren Rosenfeld. Welcome to the New Blue Review. Thank you. Good to be here. So first of all, tell us a little bit about the movie. What is hummus the movie? Uh, hummus the movie is the story of a few hummus makers. Uh, the common thing between them is that they all live in Israel. However, one is a Muslim, one is is a Christian, one is a Jew, and one character is actually a village. So, through these different characters, uh, I try and tell a story about uh, Hummus in Israel. And uh, what unites them is their love for Hummus, despite being from different religions. And uh, I also get into an element of the Hummus Wars between Israel and Lebanon for the biggest uh, Hummus plate, the Guinness Bowl World Record for the biggest Hummus plate. Talk to so us a little bit about that, because that was been picked up by quite a number of uh, different media outlets. Uh, what exactly is a Hummus War, and how did it begin? The Hummus War began um, basically in New York when somebody started uh, making a plate of Hummus that was 200 uh, kilos. And then the Lebanese countered it with uh, a bigger plate of three and a half kilos, and then somebody in Israel decided to counter that with a bigger plate, and it's been going back and forth for years. And at the moment, the Lebanese are holding the record, and it stands at over 10 tons of hummus. And the Israeli village that got seriously involved in this particular issue in terms of uh, the the biggest plate is the, the village of Abu Ghosh. Why do they feel so strongly about about hummus and, and how big it is? Uh, the village of Abu Ghosh is very interesting. It's, uh, it, it's located between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. In fact, right next to my village. Uh, that was the trigger for me making this movie. And they take pride in more than five or seven different 
restaurants that serve hummus to all passengers that go between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. So when they heard, when uh, one of the, the men in the village, a uh, hummus maker and a uh, restaurant owner, Joe Dathi Brain, heard that the Lebanese were claiming that hummus is Lebanese, he, as a Muslim, as an Arab, happens to be living in Israel, said no. It's not like, you know, champagne that has to be from uh, Champagne, France. It's, it's hummus. It's, it's Middle Eastern. It could be from the whole Levant. And he decided that he's not accepting that and uh, decided to go head to head with them and, uh, and make a bigger hummus plate. I mean, it's a very interesting reaction in, in some respects. I think uh, often when you see debates around uh, cultural appropriation or the idea that the Jews don't really belong in the Middle East, there's this sometimes simmering resentment from anti-Zionist groups who are like, oh, and the Jews even stole a hummus type of uh, a- approach to life. And it's interesting for me that it was actually an Israeli Arab village that particularly took up the cudgels of, of this argument uh, around where does the, the food actually belong. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think uh, it would have been uh, not as successful if, for instance, me or a Jewish Israeli would have done it. It would, it would have turned it into more of a politicized uh, agenda. But here, when actually uh, an Arab Muslim, you know, and he, uh, he really felt strong about the fact that hummus belongs to everyone. And, and putting aside borders and, um, you know, who owns hummus, uh, he, he decided to, to fight for the right to make hummus uh, Middle Eastern and not uh, affiliated to any particular country. And uh, what has Abu Ghosh's uh, biggest record been so far? How big is a plate of 10 tons of hummus? Well, what they've done is they took a... a a satellite dish, a huge satellite dish, and, and put it together and put it on scales and started filling it up with pre-made hummus that they've made and, until uh, the scales uh, showed that they passed the, the, the previous Lebanese uh, uh, amount. And uh, an adjudicator from London, from Guinness Book of World Records, came and, and presented the prize and made sure it's, it's all correct. <laughs> And uh, yeah, uh, all the media was there. It, it was uh, it was amazing. The whole village came out. It was really a, a festival of hummus. The Lebanese countered that with over ten tons of hummus, uh, bringing all kinds of chefs together and making the same kind of event with a big plate of hummus in Beirut uh, and beat the, the the record that was broken already in Abu Ghosh. So at the moment, the Lebanese are holding it. Uh, I tried as part of PR for my movie uh, to make 15 tons of hummus, but that didn't work out. Um, It was all set. It was all planned. You know, we'd get uh, new cement trucks from the port, never used before for cement, make hummus in them, and then, you know, put it all somewhere in in the big park and make a huge event. Uh, but when we contacted uh, Guinness, uh, Guinness, they said that at the moment they're, you know, they're afraid to send a judge over because of uh, the political and security situation. So that fell through. But you know, their answer gave me more publicity than I needed uh, to to make all those tons of hummus. 
It does seem like a bit of a strange option. I mean, what, were you building hummus in Sterot or in Gaza or something? No, the plan was either in Tel Aviv, uh, Hayarkon Park, or in Jerusalem at Sucker Park. Uh, but it was very strange. You know, they said, you know, they presented a document from the from the British Foreign Office that says that it, you know, it's too dangerous to come here, that British citizens shouldn't come to Israel at the time. And I argued, and they they stood ground, stood their ground, and uh, we left it at that. Huh, absolutely fascinating. Now, the, the political aspect of Hummus, I don't want to go too much into, but in, in some ways the characters in your film uh, are not just making Hummus, they're also having to deal with other aspects of the society uh, beyond uh, politics and somehow the hummus has also been part of their own personal journey. Correct. For instance, uh, Jalil, who is a Christian Arab, uh, living in Ramle, not Ramallah, Ramle, a city uh, just near the airport in, in, in Israel. Um, he's Palestinian, but he's also Israeli. He's an Arab, but he's also Christian. Um, very confusing uh, for people, even for, for fellow Arabs, you know. The Muslims as he says in the movie, you know, don't see him as him as Arab. You know, they see him as, as Christian. It, his uh, situation is very is very uh, unique uh, for Christians living Christian Arabs living in Israel. Uh, they're torn between uh, identities. Um, he then went off to Berlin, where he opened up a very very successful hummus place called uh, Knan with an Israeli partner, a Jewish-Israeli partner. And over there, the media calls him a Palestinian and an Israeli opened up a hummus place. But here in Israel, he's Israeli. So complicated. There's a lot of identity issues uh, that society in Israel is going through, uh, and especially the Christian Arabs. Uh, that's one aspect. Another character, Suhela, is a Muslim woman. Uh, who is running her own business together with her sister, two women, owning a business in the Arab city, um, and they employ ten men. Uh, that's unheard of in Arab Muslim society. Uh, but then again, in Israel, everything is possible. So when we went to Berlin uh, Jewish Film Festival, uh, she was invited and brought up on stage by the Prime Minister of Berlin, and he used her as an example of how uh, women, uh, Muslim women, because Berlin's full of immigrants from Muslim countries, can have their own business and succeed. So her story was used in the greater context of, of immigration and refugees in, in Europe. So all this came out from a simple movie about hummus. So I was very happy about that. And was that really your your uh, end goal here? Were you just trying to tell uh, a story about food, or were you expecting that using this as an anchor that you could uh, actually tell a greater story about uh, Israel and the Middle East? Uh, well, no, obviously not. I was trying to make a simple movie telling the story about a simple food, a basic food, but it turned out that hummus is a superfood, and then everything else around it became super. It wasn't my intention. I was very happy that as we were moving along, uh, it expanded from just being a story about food and hummus into being something much greater. Um, you know, I had people come up to me after screenings from Lebanon telling me, 
how when they started watching the movie, they were angry because they thought we're going to, you know, say how we stole Hummus from them. But then, you know, at the end, they were happy with the movie and even invited me over to, to eat Hummus, real Hummus, real Lebanese Hummus with them. So a lot of things came out of this movie that were unexpected um, for me. And that's, uh, that's the nature of a documentary. You know, you start, it's a journey, it's not scripted. You don't know what's going to happen as you're filming, as you're moving along. And, and that's only during filming and editing. But once people start seeing it, you realize that, you know, people see it in different ways. And I was very happy, uh, surprised, but very happy that uh, it went in those directions. Now, one of the aspects that you said, talked about is obviously that the food uh, is kind of uh, impacting people's lives in, in different ways. But has modernity and the world in general impacted hummus itself? Has the food changed uh, because of its surroundings as well? Yes. I mean, if you think about it, about seven years ago, uh, it would be hard to find uh, a hummus place anywhere. Um, hummus was always a side dish, was always a meze. It was something that goes along with, you know, the bigger meal. What happened in recent years is that it became a superfood. People saw the uh, the potential in hummus, uh, a health potential. And in Virginia, for instance, uh, as people are now, now realizing that smoking is not good for you, the crops originally grown there, the tobacco crops, are now being pulled out and you're growing chickpeas instead. So things have changed around the world. And now you see more and more uh, hummus places in different countries and different cities. Like in Israel, where it started, they only sell hummus. There's no other dish on the menu. And I think that's something that's really been a, a major change in the last years. I mean, if you go back in time, not too far, it would have been hard to find that. Now, uh, Israeli film in general, uh, with Netflix and all these sorts of on-demand services, has been going, I think, a little bit of a, a renaissance with uh, interesting series. Uh, but they are uh, in 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 Hebrew mostly. Uh, is your movie in one language? Is it in multiple languages? Uh, how did you sort of negotiate that? Also, given that you're talking to a variety of people, right? So I. And it's very hard to tell Israelis anything about anything, and especially when it comes to hummus. If you talk to an Israeli, uh, he'll tell you where the best hummus is. If you talk to 10 Israelis, you come out with 10 best hummus places to go to. So my intention was not uh, originally to, uh, to, to make a move about hummus for Israelis, but rather take it out. So any one of my characters that spoke English, I preferred interviewing and speaking to them in English. But uh, if they didn't, like Suhela, uh, she speaks Arabic and Hebrew. Uh, so I, the interaction with her, between me and her, was in Hebrew. And the interaction and the language she spoke to everybody else was Arabic. So the movie is in, uh, in English and Hebrew and in Arabic. Uh, obviously, we have subtitles in, in any that the film festivals requested. Um, but yeah, originally, like I said, I didn't really audience. That is very interesting. And I, 
given that uh, the movie obviously is about Israel, uh, is about not really politics per se, but there is obviously a political element when you uh, discuss this. You've been taking it to uh, film festivals. Have you had any opposition from people who are, don't want to see Israeli culture in the public sphere? Yes, many. I mean, as uh, I, I realized that uh, when I, I guess I was naive, but when when the Guinness Book of World Records refused to send uh, a representative. That's when I, you know, my first red lights came up. Uh, then when different film festivals in countries and in cities that, uh, you know, have very strong anti-Israel uh, opinions and resentment, uh, you know, refused to show my film for no good reason and no good explanation, you know, my conclusion was obviously that it's because it's an Israeli movie. Uh, but then I was also surprised that other places took it. Uh, uh, the movie uh, pr- was presented in, uh, in, in Trento's uh, International Religion Film Festival, where I sat on the table and spent three days with Iranian filmmakers and, uh, and Syrians and Iraqis. And, 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 and for them, it was normal politicians it's the it's the leaders in these countries that you know have issues with 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 it and not the artists themselves and the filmmakers um so yes i mean it was it was it was a mixture of uh, of both i guess you're listening to 101.9 chayfm on chayfm.com, and this is the New Blue Review. I'm Benji Shulman. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're speaking to Aaron Rosenfeld about Hummus, the movie. Choose high. Chai FM. You're back with 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is the new Blue Review. And we are talking about Hummus the movie with the director, Oren Rosenfeld, talking about the Middle East and increasingly globally uh, the f- favorite food, uh, hummus. And uh, we've been talking to him about the movie, what it's like to make it, and... Uh, uh, and, and even distributed. Uh, Oren, I mean, besides the actual film festivals yourself, I mean, wh- first of all, where did you get the most opposition, uh, to showing the film? And second of all, uh, besides the film festivals, uh, audience reactions, what have those been like? The countries that they want, uh, to show it, but it was, it was countries that, uh, uh generally have issues with, with Israel. Um, and, and to my surprise, or not surprise, they, they turned it back to the movie. But putting that aside, I mean, uh, the reactions, like I said, I had a Lebanese audience in New York come up to me and, and uh, you know, inviting me to their home so they can make me good hummus, Lebanese hummus. And that, that was a very touching moment. You know, they knew I'm Israeli. They were Lebanese. Uh, we were way far away from the Middle East. It was easier to do that. Uh, so I was very pleased with that reaction. Uh, obviously, I got reactions uh, that uh, were different. You know, uh, you stole, you know, their land, now the Arab land. Now you're stealing their food. You know, the usual um, uh, kind of resentment um, that you get. But being an Israeli, you know, you kind, you tend to uh, to see the bigger picture and and not. Uh, get into arguments over uh, politics, especially when you're, you're dealing with hummus. You know, no, I'm not claiming that hummus is Israeli in any way. I'm merely pointing out a fact that in Israel, uh, people serve hummus as a main dish, not as a side dish. 
hummus is part of the culture. Hummus is bigger than actually being a part of the culture. Muslims, Jews, Christians, all of these religions living in Israel have one thing in common. They all eat hummus. They all make hummus. They all love hummus. Some of them are even making a living off of hummus. Uh, it's beyond politics. It's beyond, um, you know, uh, we stole your hummus, you know, you, we, and you stole hummus, we stole hummus. It's, it's way beyond that. So I was, uh, I was happy with the reactions. And you've won uh, several awards. It's, uh, been quite popular around the world. Oh yeah. Uh, we won, uh, a few awards. Um, the last one being in Warsaw a month and a half ago, uh, at the Jewish Motifs Film Festival. And I'm very happy for, for the recognition. Um, the movie's uh, been shown in over 100 film festivals. Uh, the next one is going to be uh, coming up in the Bahamas. So everywhere, it's, it's hitting, it's going around the world from, it's, I don't think there's any country almost that it hasn't been shown or wants or will be shown in. So that was the intention of, of us making this movie was that people see it and uh, I'm very happy that it's spreading <laughs> uh, around the world. And have you had any reaction in Israel itself? Uh, uh, well, in Israel, uh, everybody's asking me when it's going to be shown here and uh, I st- there's going to be a screening on the 8th of uh, October in Jerusalem in Cinema City. Uh, that's the next one I know of and it's, uh, it's spreading here as well slowly. And talk to us a little bit about uh, documentary filmmaking. Uh, is this something that's in your background? Uh, how difficult it is to do? Because I feel like a lot of people are, th- are looking at documentaries, thinking about them. In some ways, it's easier than ever to make a documentary. Uh, so what is the process like? And what would you suggest to young aspiring, maybe young people listening to this, who who want to tell their own stories about their own food dishes? Uh, well, I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years. Uh, started from the bottom, had to work my way up. Uh, started doing sound, then uh, doing video, then producing, then directing. Uh, I've been doing this for quite a few years. And it's not easy. I mean, if you don't have it, if it's not your passion, if it's not something uh, you're really willing to commit to uh, you're, you're not going to be able to do it I mean most of my movies start as an idea then I uh, use my own money to do them in the beginning and hopefully people come along and, and want to be a part of it and then it you know, takes it to the next level but it's, it's not easy and uh, it's not enough just to have a camera and, and a good idea uh, you need a lot of dedication and love for doing this. It's long days of filming, uh, in the heat, in the cold. Uh, it's not as glamorous as that seems. Certainly, uh, passion is absolutely key when you are trying to do these sorts of projects. And uh, do you have anything else coming up on the horizon that uh, if people have uh, seen the Hummus movie that they might like to, to look at as well? Uh, well, yeah, I'm currently working on uh, in a, in a few documentaries. Uh, I'll mention one or two of them here. One is uh, Holy Vegans, the story of the vegans of the Holy Land. 
uh, Israel's been uh, a light to the nations or Lagoim in many uh, aspects. One of them is veganism. So, uh, Israel has uh, a very high percentage of uh, vegans and vegetarians, according to some polls that, I don't know if these figures are correct or not, 17% of uh, Israelis are vegetarian, and out of them, 5% are vegan. So, uh, like, in Hummus, I'm following different characters, very interesting, different uh, parts of, of society, trying to understand why they do that, and also uh, we're working on another documentary uh, in India, in Mumbai, about, it's called Mumbai Jews, about the the Jews of Mumbai, India, and uh, so these are two projects currently that I'm uh, directing. Yeah, it sounds absolutely fascinating, and I'm sure will be very interesting for people. From what I understand about the vegans of of Israel, they are uh, it can be pretty pretty extreme. Uh, there's been some pretty out there campaigns around veganism, so um, uh, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, just bear in mind that no one is listening to this program at the moment. Uh, so what you tell me will be completely in confidence. Uh, what is the best hummus place in Israel? <laughs> well, that's the million-dollar question. Um, as you know, like I mentioned, everybody you speak to will tell you where the best hummus is. And for me, hummus is, is more about, you know, who makes the hummus, how they serve it to you. I mean, hummus is a simple dish. Uh, so I have a few favorites. Uh, obviously, you can see in my movie uh, who they are at the moment. Um, and just uh, two, three days ago, I was up in Akko visiting my good friends, uh, Suhaila and Miriam, stars of Hummus the Movie. And I must say that their hummus is so delicious. I already crave it, and it's only been two days. <laughs> All right, so uh, if you... Want to have an opportunity? Maybe go watch the film, go up to Akko and uh, and get some hummus. Have, have the characters had to travel a lot since since the movie to go to film festivals? Do they get invited along as well often? So uh, a very interesting story uh, uh, with Suhela from Akko. She never left Israel, never been on a plane. Uh, it, so when she was invited to the Berlin Jewish Film Festival, it was her first time ever in her life flying. Uh, and leaving Israel, and so she got she was very excited about uh, about that. Obviously, we were because we were accompanying her. I mean, that was a documentary on its own. Uh, since then, <laughs> she's been in, in Trento, Italy, and uh, this movie has changed really changed her life. And, and she's she got to see the world, and the world loves her and loves her hummus. And in Italy, she made a hummus workshop and. All the lo- local bloggers and TV stations came, and it, it, it was a huge success. And then Berlin, the, the national channel, TV channel, followed her around town, and you know she she was a big star. Wow, that's uh, quite amazing. If people want to see the film, and you've mentioned that it's going to be on in in in, in Israel coming up, and we have listeners around the world on the station in South Africa and America and the UK. Uh, is do you have like a schedule of where people can can look up and see the film? So uh, we have a Facebook page, Hummus the Movie, and I update it personally uh, as soon as there's a screening coming up or any updates, I post it there, and uh, there's quite a few, and uh, whoever wants can keep up to date over there and find out. 
Well, there you go. If you want to have a look and see when Hummus the movie is coming to you and uh, want to get involved with that, uh, certainly go and have a look on the page. It's a movie that's been getting a lot of attention all around the world, as you've heard, and uh, I think is quintessentially Israeli, uh, as well as being part of the Levant. So, Oren Rosenfeld, thank you so much for uh, talking to us today, and good luck with all the rest of your projects. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Oren Rosenfeld. He's the director of Hummus the Movie. Uh, I don't know if you are, but I'm kind of hungry, so I'm going to be going out there and making a plate for myself right after this.